Welcome to Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics. This is the only podcast hosted by two brothers where they discuss a thing they both love, and that thing is comic books. I'm one of your hosts, the better of the two hosts, uh, and brother, comedian, comic book lover, Kevin Hines. I'm the other, far worse host and brother, Will Hines. Yeah, you have to do that. It has to, you can't. You can't deny what I've said, and I said it first, which means you said it fact. first. Yeah, yeah that's my how facts work. Yeah, my pride in being a good long form improviser is bigger than my self esteem and pride in myself as a person. Mm-hmm. So um, you defeated me. Yeah, good you for me. me. Yep. And if you are tuning in, uh, you're tuning into our Kurt Busick season, talking about Busick. Yeah. Uh, this is where we're talking about some of our favorite Kurt Busick comics, particularly a bunch from the 90s. Uh, uh, starting, we've covered uh, Thunderbolts and Marvels, and we're going to eventually cover Astro City, Superman's Secret Identity, and his run on Avengers. Mm-hmm. But this week, we are talking about Untold Tales of Spider-Man. Yes, uh, probably the 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 worst selling of the things we're going to discuss, but uh, a, a critical darling and beloved by us. Yeah, Kevin, why don't we say what we love about it so much and what's special to us? Let's go for the least important part of the story first. <laughs> okay, uh, it was only ninety nine cents, baby. <laughs> uh, when these comics came out, they were ninety nine cents. It was a low price point, uh, which is not the reason I picked it up, to be honest. Uh, Spider Man. Um. Spider-Man, he's close to our heart. We're the only ones who've ever liked Spider-Man. Yeah, I mean, he's not a popular character. He's more of a... Um, people like him more as like a Thanksgiving Day balloon, but we like him as a character. <laughs> um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reverse this, actually. Tell me, because this is a question, before I get into your personal and my personal relationship with this series, um, you say it, wasn't, it probably wasn't as big a seller as some of the other stuff we're covering. It certainly wasn't. Do you have a sense over like what its impact was at all? And in how does it loom in Kurt's legacy? Do people think about this one or is this just a you and me thing? People think about it. I think it is. a. I think I said it's a critical darling. It's one of the it's like, you know, it's like a, it's a cult classic. Right. It's a, something that is liked and beloved, but mm-hmm. often like. um you know it's more like after the fact everyone's like oh that was such a good series they should do something like that again but at the time it didn't sell great i mean it ran 25 issues which is pretty good yeah um but it got canceled for low sales mm-hmm. i think more than anything else and it, it also was a 99 cent comic so like it was cheaper so it's it's profit margin was right. tighter yeah but you know like avengers was a huge hit thunderbolts was a huge hit marvels was a colossal hit superman's secret identity was like a uh, I, I think a pretty successful book, but by that point he was like a known quantity. And Astro yeah. City is a hit. Yeah. Uh, and I think Untold Tales of Spider-Man was just like a good, quiet comic in the okay. background that he did. Um, it certainly has lasting power in the sense that if it didn't, I don't think it would have counted, if that makes any sense. Like it's a sort of, it's, so what it is, it, it takes place in between the original Ditko Lee stories yeah it sort of is woven between these the comics that came out in the 60s um but i think if people didn't like this comic those characters would have like some of these characters do pop up from time to time okay these adventures seem to have happened and it'd be very easy for a comic like this to sort of be like eh, it didn't happen i mean right. nothing that big there's no <clears throat> great shakes that right. happen so uh, there's no harm in there's no help in really denying it, I guess. Also helps it. Yes. Um, but I think it's just it's just a well-done, fun comic. It, it isn't monumental in the sense that it doesn't change anything. Like Avengers was like the last great classic Avengers run. Mm-hmm. Uh, still to this day, probably. Thunderbolts was like a brand new idea. Marvels was like a reinvention almost of how to look at old Marvel comics. Astro City was like a whole world of superheroes told in a very interesting way. Superman's secret identity, which well is not read yet. is just a really cool Superman story. Yeah. And this is just some more good spider, like more yeah. uh, Spider-Man stories in a 
bucket of great Spider-Man stories, these also are great. So I think that hurts it somewhat. And yeah. like, it's not like, oh, this is this Hobgoblin saga. This is, oh, the birth of Venom. No, it's just some good Spider-Man stories, but they're so good. Yeah. It's um, what, what, I, <clears throat> what I'm impressed by with Untold Tales, and I'm, I'm sure you are too, is that, so he says, okay, these stories are going to be woven as if they took place in between the issues that Stan Lee and Steve Ditko did. So continuity-wise, they can't disrupt anything like that. That's why nothing huge can happen. It would not make sense if in Untold Tales he reveals his identity to Liz Allen because in the other issues that Steve Ditko did, she doesn't know his identity. That wouldn't make any sense for that to happen at this time. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, But he, he captures the spirit of those original stories in a, in a pretty impressive way and also um, kind of has fun by imitating the style both in surface ways and in deep ways, I think, which I'm impressed by. Like Spidey is joyful and fun and young and the kids are mostly bullies and Jay Jonah is like a skinflint jerk. These things all remain true after Lee and Didgo, but they're brought back to a very simple form here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he expands on them in kind of a fun way. And plus he does things like little Stan Lee captions. Uh, there's Steve Didko like pinup pages and stuff. So it's, yeah. it's, like, it's like a nostalgia fest. And a, and a good one. Yeah, but it also isn't like just, he's not doing Stan Lee and the art is not doing Steve Ditko. It's its own thing. It is a very modern comic steeped in nostalgia. Uh, I read these comics to my son and I'm also reading the Steve Ditko comics to my son. Mm-hmm. And I think he enjoyed the Untold Tales more. He was more engaged in the, those stories. They're just told a little quicker, a little fresher. Mm-hmm. Um he likes the original comics because more of the villains he knows show up. Okay. Like he doesn't care as much about Scorcher and Batwing as he does about Sandman and, and Mysterio, but he certainly was more invested in those comics. The um, stories themselves. Yeah. He got very caught up in them and uh, yeah, we only stopped reading them because I didn't have, I only have them on uh, a digit. Some of them I, I, they're either bagged and boarded in a box somewhere or they're uh, I have them digitally. Uh, I don't have, there's not trade collections of like the second half of Untold Tales. So I had to stop reading at a certain point to him. Okay. Yeah. He's not allowed to have tablet time uh, before bed. Were you reading the like regular canonical Spider-Man that was coming out at this time? I wonder how different in tone Untold Tales was from like Amazing Spider-Man. I 100% was not Mm. reading Spider-Man at the time. I had stopped reading it. I gotten to a point where I didn't enjoy it anymore. Um, I don't remember exactly when these comics came out, but it was clone saga time. Like Ben Riley, the clone was around and mm-hmm. uh, things were like a mess. And Marvel in general was sort of a mess. This is shortly after Marvel's where uh, um, the, the wall started crumbling. Okay. This was like the beginning of the end of Marvel before it kind of like got reborn. Um was start so things were starting to crumble. I don't think when Untold Tales started, Marvel was doing bad, but I think it was heading that way. Yeah. Um, and so Spider-Man was an early bellwether of like bad comics. Not that the, you know, the creators were good. James Jam DiMatteis was still writing for them, yeah. but it was just like event stuff. I mean, this clone thing sort of took a life of its own. Uh, and then even after that, it was just bad for a while. And then, like, at some point they did um, I think that was after. Uh, until tales but like john byrne came and tried to redo spider-man's origin with spider-man chapter one okay. which was like a colossal flop and was <laughs> completely ignored okay right uh, and then like john byrne uh and john romita jr and howard mackie sort of relaunched spider-man to like snores and yawns okay, wow yeah um, how the how the mighty fell and then eventually uh, uh trzinski uh jms the babylon five uh, creator came in and wrote Spider-Man with John Romita Jr. art and sort of saved Spider-Man from like being bad. Okay. Uh, and that was sort of like a resurgence of Spider-Man for uh, like the last, that was the the only really good run before, uh, well, there was some other decent stuff, but that was like the big good run before uh, Brand New Day when Dan Slott and a bunch of other people came on and sort of restarted Spider-Man for good. But yeah, so Untold Tales sort of came out during a bad time. 
I was reading, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast a few times, but I was not reading a ton of comics at the time until Tales started. My my pull list was at an all-time low, partially because I was in college and had little money. You were partying. You were busy hanging out with your frat guys, uh, just, eating goldfish and sitting on flagpoles. poles. Just poor. Okay. Uh, and I don't think there was a lot, there was not a ton of comics, particularly not a ton of Marvel comics. I was very interested in. I was reading more DC at that time than anything else. And I picked up an issue of Untold Tales because the cover looked good. And I flipped through it like, and I would go into comic shops and I would flip through comics and I flipped through it. And I was like, oh, I think it's only 99 cents. And this looks good. It's by the guy who did Marvels. I'm going to buy this. Uh, and I bought it and I loved it. And then I bought every issue after that. And I tried to get the ones before it, but I couldn't find most. Uh, I could only find a few of them in back issue boxes. So there was a few I'd missed until it got collected. Um, and I loved it. Uh, and it was just like, it was for me, a guy who was not enjoying the Spider-Man comics, but who grew up first reading the Steve Ditko stories. It was like, oh yeah, these are the things that made me fall in love with Spider-Man and they're back. Yeah. Yeah. Flash Thompson isn't his friend. Not that I care that he became his friend, but it's like, ah, this is the Flash Thompson I knew. The yeah. bully who once in a while would think to himself, hey, maybe Parker's okay. <laughs> you know, that was that was yeah. his redeeming moments. Yeah. Um, J. Jonah Jameson, Betty Brandt, like all that stuff. Yeah. And I hadn't read those comics in a while. I don't know if the essentials, maybe the essentials had, I don't know if the essentials existed. I feel like yet. the essentials did exist. I feel like they did. I feel like we were reading them or that might've been concurrent, but it was certainly a thing where like, <laughs> I, I, it had been a while since I had like read and reread and read those stories over and over again. So it was great to sort of like be steeped in those stories. I love so much again. I'm looking up when the essential came out. Um, you know, for me, it also was like a rebirth into me reading uh, comic books because you told me about Untold Tales. And I, I really had all but stopped reading comics. I mean, I would buy issues of Love and Rockets when they came out. That might have been it. And that that would take me into uh, St. Mark's comics. And maybe I would pick up one or two indie things, you know, like a Dan Klaus comic or Chris Ware or something. But Sandman was over. Um, I don't believe I was picking up any Marvel or DC anything. And you said, oh, Untold Tales is really good. <clears throat> and I, I got some and I remember loving it. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is really fun. Like, I like it. And we had and I had also noticed Marvels. And so similarly, I was like, this Kurt Busiek guy is great. Um, yeah. Uh, and and for, was me, a- for me, this was the comic that completely cemented him as somebody who was one of the all time greats, like just a perennial perennial talent who makes good stuff always and is interesting. I hope at some point they, they have a trade paperback that just came out like in the last year that collects like the first half of this run plus these three. So here's the thing, because Marvel's was such a hit, Marvel's was turning out all these like painted comic books. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the ones they came out with was Amazing Fantasy 16, 17, and 18. Yes. Uh, and these were painted comic books about Spider-Man after Amazing fantasy 15 but before amazing spider-man one yeah really fun idea and uh kurt was not going to be the writer on this he didn't really love the idea i think that era he found a little shallow that time period it makes sense to me that kurt would be so knowledgeable about the continuity of spider-man that he'd be like it doesn't get good until amazing spider-man 4 or whatever yeah um but they were gonna do it yeah. It was going to happen. So he was like, I'll write it then. Cause he, cause he was working on untold tales. He's like, I don't want this to mess up my book. So yes. again, it would probably have been ignored if it was bad, but at that time, sort of everything felt like it counted. And he'd sort of like, well, I'll write these so that I have control over this era of Spider-Man. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and they're good. They're really fun stories too. And they're in this collection that they like that, that exists. So it's those three issues. I think the first 12 or 13 issues of untold tales of Spider-Man, but I want them to come out with a collection of the second half because this is like the second or third time they've collected the first six or seven issues, but it never sells well enough. So they never do more volumes. And I just want one more volume. I want to get it complete. um, So I can have it on my shelf. We need for this podcast to get big enough that we can make demands like that. Like we need the JMD Mateus spectacular Spider-Man run collected and published. I mean, that's just insane. And we need the rest of Untold Tales collected and published. And then I want yeah. Jamie Hernandez to redraw the first 100 issues of Fantastic Four. That's all I want. That's it. Okay. Um, well, I'd, rather we... see Gil- I'd rather see Gilbert, too. Uh, Actually, Gilbert's, 
Gilbert is more Kirby and, and Jaime yeah. is more Ditko. We've just lost everybody. All right, let's, um, um, what, what do you want to talk about first? We're going to go through two of the issues. We're going to go yeah, through I, and I think 16 we're gonna, and annual. We'll go pretty fast because uh, we want to cover two comics here. Uh, first of all, there's a bunch of great stories. Uh, real quick. Okay, yeah, like, let's hear it. Um, there's a great team up where Spider-Man and the Human Torch fought the wizard that I think is really fun. The wizard at that time was a Human Torch foe. And Kurt was like having fun, like pitting this Spider-Man against villains that he didn't really face. He also like went up against Hawkeye for an issue when Hawkeye okay. was in his brief villain mode. Okay. Um, so that was really fun. There's a, a great vulture story where General Thunderbolt Ross is sort of a foil in the story. And that's just fun to have Spider-Man playing off of him. Uh, so like, it was just really fun. Uh, Kurt like, explains does a story about spider-man not having glasses anymore because his glasses get broken in amazing spider-man and peter just thinks to himself i don't even need them anymore right and that's right, right. the all the explanation you get in amazing spider-man that's right so there's so he kind of delves into that more like spider-man explaining that his powers to fix his eyes and he goes to like an eye doctor to get his eyes tested so they can tell that man he doesn't need glasses anymore but it's an it's a new eye doctor who won't notice his eyes have greatly improved. And it's an eye doctor who's in league with Electro. So it's a whole adventure. <laughs> oh, very fun. Uh, he does more backstory on Betty Brant and his, her criminal brother. That's really fun. Uh, so just like all these like little holes and cracks, like he just sort of filled it. And he, plus he gave these supporting characters. Uh, he, he added Sally Averill is mentioned in Amazing Fantasy 15 and nowhere else, I believe. Okay. But he made her a fully fledged member of the uh, gang. That's fun. And also this guy, Jason, and they because they have a they have a whole big storyline because he needed characters he could do stuff with. Yes, people who weren't already locked down and <clears throat> defined. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so lots of fun stuff. And one of the other fun things he did is he visited characters who were not in the title at this time. There's an issue with uh Harry Osborne. Okay. Uh, that's sort of in the background of a Spider-Man story because Spider-Man hasn't met Harry yet. And in right. fact, the Green Goblin doesn't exist yet at this point. Yeah, Norman Osborn exists, but he has not yet become the Green Goblin. Right. Uh, uh, and um, I don't even know, I'm not even sure if Norman Osborn had entered the book at this point. But right. like, Pro- Probably not, right. But the characters exist in the background of this world. So Kurt with two stories about them to get them in early. And this is one of the first one we're going to talk about is one of those stories where it introduces Mary Jane before Peter has met her. Yes. And this is issue 16. It's told from Mary Jane's point of view before uh, she meets Peter Parker in the, cause that's not until the Ramita era. Right. And this is just a terrific story. I reread it this morning and it's just so, so good. And I remember reading it the first time. It's really, it's, I, it's one of my all time favorite issues of Spider-Man. Yeah. It's just so much fun to read. And you know, that's all eras. And the cover is inked by George Perez. Oh, so, so lovely. I'm just like, I don't know how they pulled that. That's such a great get. I like to imagine that, you know, the good creators knew that this was good stuff and they, they didn't mind lending yeah. a, a little of their time to it. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's very Busick, this issue, because it tells a lot of the Spider-Man from Mary Jane's point of view. So we are seeing the superhero from a non-superhero's point of view. That's very curt. Yeah. And the other thing it's doing is it's playing with what I guess at this time was a relatively new retcon that Mary Jane always knew that Peter Parker or almost always knew that Peter Parker was Spider-Man knew before she met him. Right. So we, we just looked this up before we started recording and this, this was not true in the original run of, of spider comics at all. But then in 1990, a graphic novel written by Jerry Conway called parallel lives kind of established that, Hey, Mary Jane maybe knew that Peter was Spider-Man when she met him and was being set up on dates by their aunts. And that in and that kind of explained why this popular girl, very different than Peter, was intrigued by him. Or, you know, not that we needed that explanation, but it kind of added some dimension to that. And it gave just Mary Jane a whole lot of complexity of, of her her accepting Peter and Spidey for who they were from very young. What do you think of that retcon, Will Hines? I love it. I absolutely love it. Me too. Um, and it's and it's really sold to me by this issue we're going over. It is. I, I always liked Mary Jane anyway. Mary Jane is my 
is my lowest lane for Spidey. That's my pick for Spidey's love interest. Mm -hmm. And she is a really good foil for Peter um, in lots of ways. And I've, and I've liked a lot of the different incarnations of me. I like Mary Jane, the friend, girlfriend, wife, divorcee. If MJ's in the story, it makes it better. Generally speaking, I think. And um, never, she's never been a divorcee. They've never been divorced. No, they've never been. They've, their marriage has just been undone by Mephisto, so they've never been married. Because <laughs> okay. uh, well, I divorce, would like her, I would like her as a divorcee. Yeah, yeah. Divorce would age them too much. I guess what I mean is, there's been times yeah, yeah. when she's a love interest, and there's times when she's over it and not an interested. Yeah, in, yeah. And an ex, yeah. So I like that dynamic too. Um, and this like this adds so much uh, depth to her. It just makes her a completely intriguing person. Yeah, and, uh, I just I love it. So yeah, it gives her like it. also a lot of agency. I think there's something really cool. First of all, I, I brought asked that question because there's some creators. I'm not even sure if Kurt loves the idea. I know Tom Brevrut does not love this change. Interesting. Um, but and other creators don't like it. Some do, some don't. Uh, I think it gives her agency. I love the idea of the person who knows your secret and doesn't tell you even that they know it. Doesn't like burden you with that there's something about that. It's like, well, I know the secret instead of like, you haven't chosen to tell me. So I'm going to keep it a secret for you. I'm going to know that about you. I'm going to own that for you. And that's it. Like, I'm not going to make it a thing about me now. I'm not gonna be like, why didn't you tell me this? Or now I'm part of your life because I know this thing. It's like, you haven't told me. It's just a thing that exists. I think yeah, there's, there's something, something really so powerful about that. Loving and respectful and trusting about it. Uh, it's very sweet. In, in the spectacular Spider-Man cartoon that I love so much, I believe they were writing her character as if she knew mm. um, because there'd be times in that cartoon where like Peter, Mary Jane would make excuses for Peter to run off and do things. She'd be like, don't you need to go get photos of this tiger? And he'd be like, oh yeah, right. And he would take off and go become Spider-Man. So like it was less Peter Parker having to run off and make excuses. It was like somebody else oh, kind of sending him off. And they never come out and say it, but I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, they, they, they did too many things right in that cartoon. I'm like, they're setting up that she knows and she's, she wants to help. So the, the arc of this particular issue is we see Mary Jane right at the beginning, discover that Peter Parker is Spider-Man and it, and it establishes that she discovers it on the night Uncle Ben is killed. She discovers Amazing it that Fantasy night. 15, yep. Yeah, so right at the beginning of the story of Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. And then we see her over time kind of like, because what happened in the comics is she's the neighbor's niece. And there are a couple of issues in the Ditko era where Aunt May says, oh, Anna Watson next door wants to set you up with her niece or something. Mm -hmm. And Peter's not into it. And then there's a couple of joke panels where I think Mary Jane is blocked by a flower or something. We don't yep. see her. You don't see her face, but you see other people reacting to how beautiful she is. And then um, after Ditko quits the book and John Romita Sr. takes over the art, she enters the story, agrees to go on a date with him and becomes one of his love interests. And that's the famous face it, Tiger. You just hit the jackpot panel yeah. where she's revealed in um, all her babelicious glory, right? And, and yeah, so th she's, this, she's, this is she's like the Veronica to Gwen's Betty for a long stretch. Exactly. So in this story, we kind of see Mary Jane discovery Spider-Man right away. And then her kind of just like mentally trying to figure out what to make of Peter Parker over the next period of time, which corresponds when she doesn't know him in the Ditko era. Yeah. Like that this was it, going on in the background. Yeah. This is very fun. The title of the, on the cover, it says, who's that girl? Uh, but really, the story is about who's that guy? Who's Peter Parker? Yes. It's her asking that question throughout, and it's really fun. Um, and we kind of see her toss around a lot of different – she recognizes a lot of contradictory things about Peter and Spider-Man, and she tries to figure it out. We, we also learn about her private life, some of which had been established already, and we see her coping mechanisms, and it just ends up stitching together – a lot of the different aspects of Mary Jane in a really elegant way. We see class clown party girl. We see a woman who's a girl's been traumatized by it, by an abusive home life. We see the friend of Spider-Man who believes in him. 
Um, we see the person who's not afraid to call out Peter when Peter's going wrong. It all gets stitched together here so yeah. elegantly. It's just like, I God. don't think there's anything new in this story, but yeah, it basically takes all these things that did not exist at this time and says, well, if these things are all true, let's write a story knowing all that now. Because you couldn't, Ditko couldn't write a plot knowing Mary Jane knew, nor could uh, Ramita, nor could Lee or Conway at the time. But the Kurt has Conway's the benefit now. Yeah. Yeah, Kurt has the benefit of saying, well, I now know this, so I can now tell an original story knowing that she knows. It's really great. And have fun with it. And he does. He has great fun. You know, in the background, Spider-Man fights Radioactive Man, which is fun in its own right. Yes, but also it's the heart of the story is Mary Jane. Um, so we see her rejecting the idea of a date with Peter immediately after she sees that he's Spider-Man. And this is where it's really fun if you really know the comics. Like her, she's like, uh, "Tell him I have a headache or or something, right?" Isn't what she says? Yes. Uh, because and that's the first excuse Peter hears, and he's like, "Woohoo! She's got a headache. I don't have to go out with her." He's like happy in yes, his we, side of the story. We see the supposed other side of it. Um, I I really love uh, Mary Jane's class clown bit on page. I think it's four or five of this where she is. You know, we see her discover it's Peter, and then we kind of see her keeping her eye on Peter and being like, what's with this guy? He's a nerd, but he's also Spider-Man. And then we see her giving a book report to her high school class, and she chooses to do it on the itsy bitsy spider as a goof, and the teacher's calling her out, and she's like doing a little joke for the class. But you got to love the classics, Mrs. Dorsey. Besides, think of the drama, the passion, the hidden symbolism, and the class is kind of smiling at her jokes and it's like kind of an elegant portrayal of a class clown, the kind of thing that a wise ass would do in high school, try to like pass off a kid's story and be sort of cute about it. And doing that, at, that she is sort of becoming obsessed with Spider-Man, even to the point where she picks Itsy Bitsy Spider for her book report. And we see her defensive coping mechanism of being a class clown. I'm just like really impressed with Busick in this story. Yeah. Uh, there's also like that she just believes that he's going to win. Like in this fight, Radioactive Man is going to go nuclear and like blow up New York City. And Mary Jane, there's moments where she's nervous about it. But when people ask her about it, she's like, he's going to do it. He's going to and like and then she even thinks to herself, why do I believe he's going to pull this off? I know he's a kid. Yes, exactly. I know who he is. He, there's no reason I should have confidence in Peter Parker, the uh, nephew of Aunt May. But I guess I guess that's. We're, we're seeing, I guess, their love in a way. She trusts him. Like she, she just has faith in him. Um, she's also seen as shown as really sharp. Like she's observing these battles and she's basically an excellent reporter for us, the reader, because she notices all kinds of things uh, right away. You know, and again, this is real Kurt Busick to like view a battle from the ground. Yeah. It's just a really, really fun. If you were going to read one issue of Untold Tales, this is probably the one you want to read. Uh, it, she's fighting Radioactive Man in the museum, and Mary Jane is there with her aunt, Anna Watson, and Spidey takes a caveman and knocks the Radioactive Man over into some radioactive stones, and he goes, uh-oh. And then Mary Jane is shown saying, uh-oh, what for he said, uh-oh. And it's kind of like jokey dialogue. Mm -hmm. But like also sharp, like she's noticing all these little things. Um, also, Spidey calls her pretty when he dives into the ground. You're not going after him, are you? Mary Jane says that to Spider-Man when he's diving after Radioactive Man when he escapes at the bottom of the museum. And Spidey goes, got to, pretty girl. If there's any way to stop him from exploding, any way at all, it's up to me to find it. And then above ground is when Mary Jane's cocky on his behalf to the reporters. Yeah. Um, and she's also like, it's very fun. Like, uh, there's a little bit of this jive lingo that she'll have later on and how she talks here and there, which is I consistent think, with the Ramita era. Yeah. And it's like maybe a little subdued. I don't know, but it is, it's still very much there and it's very fun because she doesn't talk like that anymore at all in comics of course there's also a really fun thing i noticed today maybe this is so obvious but whenever somebody's watching her like she's in class she's with a group of friends she's talked to the reporters she's like smiling and kind of like playing with her hair very much like how ramita drew her like flirty party girl you know and then whenever nobody's watching her and she's just with her own thoughts she gets, to, she gets a very serious kind of like worried face that only we, the reader, see. Um, kind of showing her two sides, you know, in parallel to his two sides. 
I, I just think it's really fun. I mean, yeah, I agree. I should, if you're gonna if you're gonna pick up an issue of Untold Tales, start with this one. I mean, they 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 every one I read is good. Yeah, but that said, this is, is not extra. in the this is not in the current collection. So uh, you have to get like a back issue or see this on Marvel Unlimited to read it. Uh, the collection collects, uh, be, ends before this issue, unfortunately. Um, uh, the art also, I think, is great. I think Pat Olaf is the artist, and he is really, really good. Uh, he draws action really well, and the pages move, and they're simple, uh, which like plays into this nostalgic feel of it. But the way he draws like Spidey jumping around is really good. He draws a really good Ditko-era squarehead Spider-Man. Yeah. Um, I really love his style. There's a fun moment when Spidey defeats uh, the radioactive man by throwing him into a coal barge, which his science nerd self knew would counteract somehow mm-hmm. the superpowers of the radioactive man. And Spidey kind of joy- joyfully jumps up and goes, I did it! Kind of like yeah. he wasn't 100% sure it would work. Um, he's still like a kid who pulled off this feat. That's There's a lot of those fun kind of joyous teen Spidey moments throughout these stories. Yeah, I mean, this is such a great era for Spider-Man because there's no... I don't, uh, as you know, I don't like having to like call the FF for help. There's no way for him to get help. He doesn't know the FF. He doesn't know the Avengers. There's no way to get in touch with those heroes. If they don't show up, it does sort of feel like he's the only hope the city has to stop this threat. And he pulls it off. He's alone. He's a teenager who is fighting this battle completely alone. Toward the end of this thing, Mary Jane is kind of summarizing the different sides of Peter that she has seen. He did it. You know, this is Mary Jane's thoughts. And I don't know how to feel. He's science geek Peter Parker. He's a laughing, joking adventurer. He's the boy next door. He's a hero who saved the city. I just I just don't know. Uh, it's really, I don't know. It's just a great way to view Spidey. It's very satisfying. Also a fun subplot where Peter has been asked by Liz Allen to reintegrate Jason um, and tiny back into the friend group because they've been ostracized because they're maybe unfairly associated with a tragic death or something. Uh, Jason, she's, he has to reintegrate Jason. Tiny has been welcomed back in open arms. Okay. Because he was cooler, basically, and Jason was less cool. And Liz is like, it's not fair. Jason's so alone. And, and Jason hates Peter Parker. The gang mostly hates Peter Parker, but he, she knows he's smart enough to find a way to pull it off, and he does. Yeah, at his house, he has a welcome back party where welcome back Tiny and Jason. And and he does that. So by coupling it with Tiny, it kind of gets Jason welcomed back into the group by doing it for both of them. He couldn't do it just for Jason. No one would care. Yeah. And then there's a fun little Ditko thing because Liz kisses Peter on the cheek, thanking him for doing this just as Betty Brandt walks in. So she's mad at Peter for mm-hmm. flirting with Liz Allen. And that happened several times in the Ditko stories. <laughs> frequently, frequently by this era. Too often, but uh, still but love I, Betty. And then Jason turns on Peter is the funniest yeah. thing to me. This guy whose reputation he saved out of the goodness of his heart turns on Peter. That's extremely Ditko era. Yeah. Not, yeah nobody likes Peter at the end of this, except for Liz. Uh, but, you know, she's still with Flash, of course. And this, there's a, the second to last panel shows Peter collapsing on the easy chair with his head resting in his hand. I think this is a direct callback to some old Ditko panel. I think there is like around issue 16 or 17, Peter does this exact pose when it's like, boy, oh boy, you know, I got a bunch, I got a ton of luck, all bad or something like that. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. It, it, it may have, I don't, nothing jumps to mind, but it definitely is reminiscent of that for sure. And then it closes with Mary Jane, just looking out her window over the fence at Peter's house, wondering about him. <laughs> I, I love this issue. I love it. Yeah. It's really, really fun. It's, it's just a very well done, uh, look at that era that I love so much bringing in later stuff. I mean, like I, I like some of the Ramita stuff. I don't love the Ramita stuff as much as Ditko, but this is sort of playing with those pieces in a way that I love so, so much. Yeah. Um, should we move on and talk about the annual? Oh, maybe we should take a break and then well, now we should take a break. Yeah. And then we'll right. talk about the, annual. see, I knew, I knew Kevin, I'm getting good at this. Fine. <laughs> 
Hi, this is Kevin. I'm here with my brother, Will, and we are the hosts of Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics, our weekly podcast about comic books. And we want to hear from you. We have a slew of social media accounts, a slew. You can email us at screwitcomics at gmail.com or see us on Instagram at screwitcomics or tweet at us at screwitcomics. So tell us what you think of the comics you like or the comics you don't or things we've talked about on our episodes. Or send us some life advice. You can tell that we need it. Yes. Uh, we might read your message on a future episode of our show. So thanks in advance from Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics from Campfire Media. All right, and we are back. Uh, funny story. Uh, we're about to go over uh, Untold Tales Annual 96. I had read Annual 97 uh, in preparation for this. And so I just, uh, I just, we had to take a break so I could read this issue. But I, I did read this at the time. I, I remember talking with you about it, Kevin, because you like it so much. And I, I also like it. So I'm caught up. Yeah. I mean, this is, um, this probably what maybe was one of the bigger moments of the time. Like, I, I'm not sure if this came up before the Mary Jane issue or not. It, I think it did, though. I think it came out before that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it was like, I don't know. It, it felt like this felt like a bigger deal than the series itself because Mike Allred is drawing it. And he sort of is a big indie name because of Mad Men, uh, the comic, not the uh, AMC TV show. <laughs> right. Um, and like that, it's just sort of steeped in fun. Like this is just fun. And, and Allred's style is very Kirby-ish in its old style in this. And Joe Sinnott inks it. So you've really got some real FF uh, uh, legacy on this. Yes. Um, and it's an annual and it's like set up like the amazing Spider-Man one annual because it's got the same sorts of backups, like how they make an issue of untold tales is, is a, just a, an imitation of the, how they make an issue of amazing Spider-Man that Ditko right. and Lee did. Mm -hmm. It's got pinups of all the villains we've seen so far in untold tales. So it really, really maps a lot of the stuff that was in the first amazing Spider-Man annual so it's really fun on a lot of different levels. We're just going to talk about the main story, which yeah. I think is just a blast. So what is the main story here? What do we got? This features the Human Torch and the so, Invisible yeah. Woman. Spider-Man and the Human Torch are rivals at this point. Um, and Spider-Man decides to get the Human Torch's goat by asking his sister out on a date. But then she says yes. At this point, she's not married to Reed. She's just Susan Storm. Uh, so she says, yes, I'll go on a date with you, Spider-Man. And uh, he goes on a date with Spider-Man. And the Torch is so mad, he goes and gets the Namor, the Submariner, who's in love with Sue, and tells her that Spider-Man has kidnapped his sister so that Namor will go beat the crap out of Spider-Man, basically. Yeah. One of the most powerful people on the planet. Yes. The Human Torch six him on Spider-Man. Yes. It's really fun, right? I mean, it's just yeah. Torch being juvenile and shallow. Um, Spidey, but Spidey also was kind of a hopeless nerd in many cases here. Um, yeah. there, there's lots of playing the established comedic games that these characters already have and, and a little bit of kind of expanding them in a fun way. Nothing major, but there's yeah. some fun to be had. Like, you know, Torch never sucked the su stuck, uh, suck. I was like, sicked the Submariner onto Spider-Man. That's like pretty far, but it's funny that he does it. Yeah. Who doesn't go out with Spidey, but Spidey does flirt with Sue Storm in a couple of Ditko stories. Yeah. I mean, like the, the thing about those old comics is like the, they were tonally, they changed a lot, right? Spider-Man was like really mean to the torch sometimes. Like it wasn't yes. like the torch was the jerk in the story. This one sort of plays off of Spider-Man shows up at the torch's party ruins the party picks a fight with a torch then picks a fight with the entire ff and then fly and swings away and it's like he's the hero of our book but uh but also like the torch he, he just hates the torch because everyone loves the human torch and nobody likes spider-man right uh and that's also really fun uh, one of the things i really like about the friendship that is developed between the human torch and spider-man is that they shouldn't be friends right the right one's the nerd one's the popular kid who loves cars yeah, and the only reason I feel like their friendship works for me is because they were like the only kids in the Marvel Universe for a while. Right. They were like the only teenagers in a world of men, superheroes. And even though they have nothing, they don't have anything in common, that one thing in common is so huge and so big that like having grown up in the Marvel age of comics, they have to be friends now. Yeah. 
Um, but at this point, they're like sort of button heads a lot. They're like rivals, and it's such a fun story. Um, yeah, and it and it builds off of this little moment at the end of the Ditko, uh, the Ditko inked, I believe, Kirby drawn Spider Man Human Torch fight where it ends with the human Spider-Man leaving a web heart for this, for Sue. Right. In the sand. And uh, jo- that irritates Johnny in the comic, but in the, in the original Ditko comic, Sue's kind of like, yeah, she doesn't mind it. Yeah. She's yeah. like, Oh, that's so sweet. I mean, in the original comics, women were always uh, in love with a masked man. I bet he's right. so handsome under that mask. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Real quick in this story, what happens is, the torch basically captures some bad guys that Spider-Man was about to capture and then gets all the accolades and, and sort of rubs it in Spider-Man's face that he did it. Yeah. So Spider-Man decides to ask Sue out on a date, but Sue is being kind of ignored by Reed at the time. So she's sort of feeling irritated Collected. with the FF. Yeah. And so she says, yeah, why not? I'll go on a date with you. Uh, and Spider-Man takes Sue Storm, who's basically Jackie Kennedy. Like, yeah, there's no one. There's not a bigger deal that you could take on a date uh, in the world, right? This is dating uh, Julia Roberts after Pretty Woman comes out. This is dating yeah. like Jennifer yeah. Aniston during season three of Friends. It's like it doesn't get like it's like the most unattainable woman that everyone would be like, you're dating who? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's so funny. Um, Peter just walking around in space the day after she says yes is hilarious. His yeah. complete ineptness of taking her out on a date is also just very charming and funny. Yeah, I mean, up to this point, he's only dated Betty Brant, who also sort of it was similar to him, like when he's like, all I can afford is pizza tonight. She's like, that's great. But with Sue, he's like taking her to a pizza place and it feels crazy. Yeah, it feels nuts to take Julia Roberts to like your local pizza joint. Also, he yeah. didn't plan ahead. He also wears a little web bow tie. That's quite funny. <laughs> that's really funny, yeah. He doesn't have a way to, he was just going to carry her because he doesn't have a car or a vehicle. So he has to like swing around and carry her. So she's like, we'll take the fantastic car. It's like they're taking her car. One funny aspect of the story is she's not interested in Spider-Man and she just wants to rub Reed's face in it. So anything is fine with her, you know? Yeah. Her driving the fantastic car to the pizza place. She's like, great. I love it. I love it. And even though on the date, she just talks about Reed and, and Namor. She doesn't really feel mean to Peter either. No, she doesn't, no, she doesn't seem like she's taking advantage of him that much. Like she's like, yeah, it's a fun little date. And and I didn't, you know, maybe she leads him on a little bit by saying she'd go on a date with him, but not, it doesn't feel like in a cruel way. If, he, if Spider-Man wasn't attacked by the King of Atlantis, I think he would have gone like, that was fun, even though it, at the end, it doesn't mean anything. Right. Uh, also, Sue doesn't know that this kid's 16 years old here, right? But Sue's pretty young. I mean, in this era she's, of comics, she's probably right? 23, right? 24. I mean, in these comics, I think she is considered to be like 18 or like oh, okay. she's way younger than Reed. I see. Okay. Uh, um, she was always like uh, portrayed as like he knew her when she was a kid. It's a little bit of a creepy angle to the Reed Sue relationship. I gotcha. Um, it's sort of best left ignored. But so her age is question mark. She's not much older than Johnny, is how I've always assumed. All right, I'm going to say she's 20 and he's 16. Yeah. So Namor shows up and gets into a fight with Spidey. Because the Human Torch basically says Spider-Man has kidnapped Sue. And Namor immediately takes off. And Human Torch is delighted by this. He's like, he didn't even ask why we weren't saving her. Like, why would we have to go to him? We're the Fantastic Four. He's like, oh, but Namor's so instantly in on it. Yeah. Uh, the art is so great in this issue with the pictures of Spider-Man eating the pizza are just so fun. It's so funny. Like first he's kind of gnawing at the pizza while he's talking about the problems of having a secret identity. And he looks just kind of a little bit like, I don't know, he's eating it. it t- he doesn't look cool, right? It looks like no. it's a little bit out of control in his teeth. Then Sue's talking about reading Nemo. We cut to Spidey and he's bored. He's got, he's got like his head in his hand, kind of like, oh, geez. It's yeah. very funny. The art is really great. And it, yeah, I mean, like Spider-Man is the class clown of the Marvel Universe, even though he's very powerful and, and you know, one of the big heroes. He's sort of a goof. He's the he's the guy in the corner that's like making light of the situation where Sue is the person who you'd want making a big speech in front of everyone if yeah. Captain America is not available. So There's such a fun pairing. And so uh, eventually, while Spidey and Namor are fighting, the FF get involved because there's this huge fight going on and they find out that Johnny, that this is because of Johnny. What are we looking at? Just showing a great punch. Namor punches Spider-Man so hard 
not quite rogue hard, but uh, uh, he just flips upside down through the front of the building. The yeah. whole front of the building is just gone after this punch. Uh, but yes, the uh, uh, Sue summons the FF to come help tame Namor. Uh, again, I mentioned I mentioned Joe Sinnott inks this because Joe Sinnott uh, inking thing is just perfect, man. It's just it, I love it. It looks so good. That's the classic thing. That's the thing that I picture in yeah. my head when I when I am imagining him. Some of these panels are very all red, and but the, anything with the thing in it, I'm like, oh, it just feels like classic FF. Another another panel I always remember is when Namor's picking up a chimney to throw at Spidey. Spidey goes, oh, man, that looks heavy. I bet that's heavy. <laughs> Look, Namor, I never kidnapped anyone. I'm one of the good guys, honest, and my head's killing me. Can we just? He's just trying to talk him down. Yeah, it's way too late. <laughs> uh, also, for some reason, uh, Jonah and Betty are walking by, so they almost get killed. That's fun, too. And Spider-Man saving them is what convinces Namor, hey, something's up here. This is not a bad guy. He just saved uh, those innocent bystanders, putting himself in danger. Yeah. Yeah, and that basically wraps up pretty quick. Uh, Spider-Man wrecks the human torch's car in a fun way. Uh, but it, it's it's a pretty light story, but it's so fun. It, it just oozes charm and fun. Yes. And it's it's a really cool idea. It says in the credits, Paul Dini gave Kurt Busiek the idea. Paul Dini is one of the architects behind Batman, the animated series. So Amazing. Uh, I mean, it's a great idea for a story. Um, I mean, if, if the only creative thing I'd ever done in my life was pitch this idea to Kurt, <laughs> I'd be pretty satisfied. I'd be like, ooh, again, that's me, man. I don't know. I think somehow you'd find a way to be self-deprecating about it. And then if you said like, oh, and also you create, you helped create Batman the Animated Series, I'd be like, yeah, I that's guess a that's close a close number two. That's a bonus. <laughs> Tell me about that Spider-Man comic again that I didn't write myself. <laughs> it's an outstanding issue. Um Kevin, you got good taste in comics. The the Untold Tales number 16 with Mary Jane and this annual are outstanding, super fun issues. They really display Kurt Busick's skills to take existing continuity and find what makes them work, give give some new muscles and blood in the gaps from the original story. Um, great yeah, sense they, of character and dialogue. They show what's so cool about this run of Untold Tales. Uh, just like how, like, it didn't let the fact that everything is sort of locked in, stop them from telling a great, great story here. It's that back to basics approach. I mean, it's just, it's, it, I think it looks easier than it is. I mean, I think like yeah. Kurt is a really careful writer. He thinks through, he's just must be the most disciplined guy for breaking down his own plots and thinking them through. And does this make sense? And is this a smart move for what the character knows? Is it reflective of their personality? Does it say something about the character's arc overall. I mean, these stories yeah. are good. Ooh, I mean, also good. in the, this day and age where like every story feels like it's a minimum three parts, generally four to six parts, like reading a told in one story, which we've now just talked about two of, they're really good. And like, I've been, like I said, I read all the untold tales to my son and it's really mm -hmm. great. Who a I couple of them, he gets, he gets very nervous about them sometimes. Yes. And I just, all I have to say to him is like, do you think Spider-Man's going to lose this time? Because he always wins, Daddy. Because every issue ends with Spider-Man on top because they're wrapped up at the end of the issue. Yep. Uh, and it there is something nice for me as a dad reading it to my son. Is like, I don't have to remember whether, how this issue ends. Like, I know it works out okay. Like, and some I, things I, will be down. Spider-Man's sad, maybe. But, like, the villain will be stopped. Spider-Man will be alive. They're not I, cliffhangers. I remember a million years ago, me and a, uh, my then-girlfriend were, like, babysitting a, like, four-year-old. And uh, my, the girl was like, Will, uh, he loves Batman. Tell him the story of Batman's origin. And I was like, uh, no, I can't, uh, I can't do that to the four-year-old. I'm just sorry. I'll tell him. I'll that four-year-old, Christian Bale. Yeah, exactly. I wish I'd been the one to tell him. I wish I'd been <laughs> the one to tell him. Having a kid in the family makes you appreciate family-friendly stuff. Like, yeah. Sometimes, you know, when I was a cooler than everybody teenager, I would turn my nose up at family friendly stuff yeah. as being, you know, square. But it's like, no, you want something that kids can read and you don't have to worry about <laughs> yeah. some dark stuff going down. Mind you, there's an issue where uh, it's heavily inferred, not quite out and out said that uh, Tiny's dad beats him. So I had to sort of okay. read that part to him. And that was <laughs> that was a little trickier, but it also isn't shown and it's left kind of off panel. And I could just be like. This kid's dad is mean to him. Okay, Not everybody yeah. has a nice dad. 
now you know how lucky you have it. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, you go to bed and stop crying. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's like it, I, what I really loved about these stories is like there were lessons in them. Uh, more, uh, more I, out, like morality tales. Yeah, just like there's an issue where um, Spider-Man is offered money to capture this uh, basically a man bat-like character named Batwing, and he's like, "Oh, great, I need money." He's like, "Aunt May is broke. We can't pay our bills. If I catch this guy, I'm set." I've been offered a reward to catch this kid. And he catches Batwing and realizes Batwing is just a kid who's stealing food to survive. And he goes, well, I can't capture him. Yeah, I'm not going to take this kid in. He'll be experimented on. He'll be hurt. Instead, I will take photos of him and sell those to the Bugle for less money. But that's all I need. I just need a little money to get by for, a you know, and we'll figure something else out later. Yeah. And it's so great to see like, no, it's not worth it. I can't. I have to do the right thing. I have to help this kid. Now that I know he's not a monster, I'm going to help him. And it's really cool. It's like, just because he looks like a monster, he isn't a monster. Just because you need money doesn't mean you should do the wrong thing. Uh, it's like just really great stuff. It's an outstanding series. So, and uh, we recommend it. And it's one of the many reasons why Kurt Busiek is one of the best writers in comics. And we are excited to keep talking about it. Yeah. If you've got Marvel Unlimited, it's on there. If you don't, uh, go on Amazon or go to your comic book shop and look for, I think it's called like The Complete Untold Tales of Spider-Man or Untold Tales of Spider-Man Omnibus Volume 1 or something like that. Yeah, It's great. It's a great collection. And if you buy it, maybe they'll make Volume 2 for me. (laughs) Should we do some mail, Kev? All right. We're going to do a bunch, but they're real quick ones. Okay, great. First, we're going to do, these are recommendations, Will, that people have made. Okay. Just burn through a bunch of those. Um, This is a recommendation from Nabil. Let me, let me say this before you get into it. If you want to email us, screwitcomics at gmail is our email address. Please send us any thoughts you have on anything we're talking about or anything comics related. And uh, we also have a Twitter account, screwitcomics, and an Instagram, screwitcomics. Please follow us on Instagram. My brother, Kevin, puts a lot of work into that account. There's great screenshots of, this, of these amazing comics we discuss. And it's a really great supplement to our podcast. All right, Kevin. So Nabil Stark talked, he loved our uh, Frank Miller Daredevil Born Again coverage and enjoyed our Moon Knight episode. I've always been fascinated by Moon Knight, but it was hard to break into comics. I'd only read the Warren Ellis run. So hearing your breakdown of the character's history and each new interpretation of the character was very enlightening. I was wondering, is there another character that you would like to cover in a similar way to your Moon Knight episode? Uh, Personally, I would recommend Deadpool. Just like Moon Knight, Deadpool took a few different tries before the character was figured out. Reading some of the early Deadpool tales, you can tell that the creators had something, but it took a few years before they knew what it was. It's interesting to see how Deadpool had changed through different creative teams, especially before he was popularized in the movies. Uh, I'd also recommend Daredevil, since it seems as though there are many different takes on that character. It's also rare for Daredevil to have a bad creative team, so you would probably enjoy reading through The Man Without Fear's various interpretations. Even the early Stan Lee stuff is pretty fun, especially once Gene Colan comes along. Keep up the good work. I hope you guys never stop covering Claremont's X-Men. <laughs> I, I mean, that's great. Deadpool is a good, that's a good description. That of is a good like, choice, yeah. He has gone through a lot of different iterations. We're mostly going to do those for the TV shows, I think, right? That's the plan? That's our plan right now. We're going to do crash courses for like the TV show so that if people want to know the comic book background of this character who's in the news, we'll, so I think we're, we'll, we'll talk about it. Like, I think we're going to do one on She-Hulk. Mm-hmm. We have an email from Joshua Marshall. Although born in New York, I grew up in and around New Haven, Connecticut, and was used to go to a long defunct shop, Paperback Trader. Uh, I think it moved around and changed hands. So on my rare visits back to New Haven, I would hit it up and maybe possibly uh, go to its legacy incarnation alternate universe on Chapel and Park near Yale University in New Haven. I'm 53, so I can relate with you guys from a similar comic past and really dig your comedy. Longtime CBB, Earwolf, UCB fan. I can handle the sleuths. I think he means <laughs> I can handle the sleuths? Yes. Unless that's a joke. I've uh, maybe, nope, 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 maybe there's nope. a lot of candle puns in your show. Not yet, but I think there should be. As for Born Again, I was introduced to Dark Knight Returns and Born Again at the Paperback Trader on Whitney Avenue, New Haven, back in 86, the year I graduated high school. I was similarly blown away by both series, but Daredevil, thanks to Miller's earlier run, was my fave. Will, I can truly relate to the thrill you expressed seeing the cliffhangers. Matt Murdock stood in front of his demolished apartment building and came to the realization that Kingpin was behind it. He talks a little bit about Captain America here and how great Captain America is in that comic. And then he finishes up by saying, I'll make one fan request, Dreadstar. I also read Dreadstar back in the day, Jim Starlin's emblem series under the Epic Comics imprint. I don't know if it holds up, but the Dreadstar team and its more mature themes was a fave of mine back in the day. 
It'd be fun to hear you guys revisit that series. If it's even still available, keep podcasting. I remember when Dreadstar was around and he said Eclipse, right? It's an Eclipse book. He said Epic. Okay. Uh, But I think think Dreadstar was one of those books that jumped around uh, from imprint to imprint. I definitely remember noticing that character. I never read it at the time. I like that suggestion. That is the kind of commercially irrelevant 80s focused <laughs> character that Kevin and I do like to focus yep. on. So it's a good pitch. I've never read Dreadstar either, but I, I mean, Jim Starlin is he the guy who came up with Thanos, the guy who did some really cool stuff, man. The guy yes. is Dan Gelati emails us with this recommendation, Will. You mean Danbury, Danbury High School alumni, Dan Gelati. Yeah, we've got a lot, of, a lot of Connecticut people right now. I want an excuse to reread. Uh, John Burns, Next Men. And it looks like your podcast could be just such an excuse. Did either <laughs> of you delve into Next Men? And that's basically it. I and never did. did. Re- I never did. I remember noticing it when it was out and thinking about it. But I think because I had never read Burns X-Men, I wasn't like especially allured. Yeah, yeah it was pretty popular. I remember. Um, it, I mean, the Next Men was basically his like creator-owned X-Men book in a lot of ways. I know it's an obnoxious title. It'd be like if James Galdolfini did a show like The Sopraltos or something, like just blatantly trading on your your more well-known thing. Yeah, I um, ended up, uh, I read his Danger Unlimited series he did after that, which was basically his uh, creator-owned FF, but it only lasted like five issues. And I, I loved it. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. Go headers. Uh, Nathan Adams emails us. I love what you guys do. You're both hilarious. I could stop there. That's already a pretty good email. Yeah, it's, thanks for the email. Uh, moving on. Uh, thank you so much for talking about comics. I have almost nobody to talk to about them, and this is an excellent outlet for me. I laugh so hard while I listen to you guys. Have you considered covering the ultimate Fantastic Four comics at all? I think you would love them, and I would love to hear your commentary about them. Uh, I've read most of those. I don't feel like we're going to cover those just because it doesn't feel like it fits the sort of stuff that either we both like or I'm crazy nuts about. Right. But uh, it's definitely possible. Yeah. We love all these suggestions, even if they end up not being something that works out. It's always interesting to hear. They're usually really good ideas, including this one. Uh, It's where the uh, Marvel zombie series launched out of that title. And Mike Carey wrote a short run. And I love Mike Carey. So I've got some fondness for the ultimate FF. But if we're going to do FF, I feel like we're going to do the burn FF. For sure. We got one here from Izuku. Uh, I think if you guys uh, would cover DC's book, Deceased, uh, it's good. And I want to see what fun you can make of it. Deceased is basically a, a DC comics zombies, basically. Uh, it's not quite that, but that's the easy pitch for it. Okay. Um, but it's written by Tom Taylor. He's the guy who did that Spider-Man uh, comic we read with uh, Scott Ackerman. Spider-Bite. Yeah. So uh, it's, a good, it's a good writer. I haven't read it. And it's... Uh, I. I Tom Taylor does all these books of things that sound bad to me. And anytime I read them, they're great. Uh, he did the adaption of the Superman is an evil video game called, uh, what was that called? Uh, called Injustice. There's a video game where Superman is evil and all the heroes have to like fight him. And it, that's a terrible thing. I don't really love that idea. And he wrote the comic book adaption of it. And it is unbelievably good. Oh, wow. Uh, it's just like the, cre- the characters are all, except for the fact that you have to accept Superman is a villain. Everything yes. else in it is like really well written. Okay. And so it's like, well, yeah, I guess I can accept that one thing if you're going to write everybody so good. Even even Superman is pretty well written if you accept that one caveat. Anyway, Tom Taylor is legit good. Um, boom, boom, boom. Two more suggestions. This one from a couple of Ben's. This one's from Benjamin Suarto. Uh, I want to recommend Mark Wade's Daredevil Run. It's pretty light and fun. Uh, and at least uh, one filler issue is totally written for kids, and that one is worth it alone. And this is sort of in reference to me asking for all ages Daredevil stuff. Okay. Uh, Mark Wade's Daredevil run is great. All right. It's got the Kevin Hines seal of approval. Hot takes Hines doesn't mind the Mark Wade Daredevil. It was like following up on some very dark Daredevil runs, and Mark Wade basically came in just like to bring the fun back a little bit. It yes. still has some dark stuff, but it was like a little bit of the swashbuckling Daredevil came back. Uh, and one more recommendation. This is uh, Ben Sanborn. He talks, uh, let's read the beginning part. Really looking forward to your Busick episodes. I took a break from comics around 91, but on recommendations from the local comic shop owner, I picked up the Busick, Busick Perez run on Avengers and loved every minute of it. Busick took what was great about the Avengers and put his own stamp on it without trying to overhaul the title. And of course, Perez's art did not hurt one bit. <laughs> 
Uh, I know I have hounded you guys in the past to review Mark Grunewald's 1985 12-issue maxi-series Squadron Supreme in the past. Uh, I enjoyed the series, this series over the darker Watchmen, even though I know I am the minority with that take. Many do agree with me. I would like your opinion on the series in the future and maybe compare both books. I have left a link, and he leaves a link to an article about it from a really cool website, uh, comic book site called 13th Dimension. That friend of the podcast, Alex Agura, has even written for a little bit. Okay. Uh, Squadron Supreme. Well, that's something you've read, and I haven't. I read it when it came out, and I did really like it. And then Watchmen came out. And even at the time, there was a ton of like, oh, Watchmen just kind of like beat Squadron Supreme at its own game. And there were people even then who were like, oh, Squadron actually is good. And, you know, it has a different approach and it does things uh, differently. And, um, but I can't remember much about it. So I'm, I'm curious to read it again. I remember thinking it was very solid and maybe it's even better. Yeah. And maybe it probably hurt because it was so close to Watchmen, right? Like if yes, it was yeah. a few years earlier, it would have been a to bigger my, deal. It, it would be like if there was a mob television show the year before The Sopranos came out and the mob show was like pretty good. Yeah. I'm going to keep using Sopranos metaphors to explain everything. Great. I've got two little batches of comics here. One about Daredevil's personality and one about uh, corrections. Well, do we have time for both of those or just one of those? Let's do them. Let's do them both. Okay. People don't like, Will, that you think Matt Murdock does not have a personality. (laughs) Jeez. Okay. (laughs) Um, This is from John Cassidy. Okay. Uh, Not the artist behind Planetary, I don't believe. If it is, I love your work. (laughs) Um. If it isn't, maybe I do like your work. Maybe we like your work. Yeah, we don't know your work. I don't know your work, but I bet I'd like it. Your conversation of who is Daredevil Matt Murdock and what makes him different from other superheroes was interesting. I think Daredevil is a uniquely Catholic superhero. It's maybe most clearly put into contrast when Daredevil and Punisher are paired together. They make great foils for one another. I'd say they both are acutely aware of the world's extraordinary darkness. They are monsters in the world looking to do unspeakably evil things. Those people must be stopped. There's no question there. But what happens after that is up to us. We can decide what the story becomes. It can be a story of punishment. That would be a totally understandable reaction to staring down that darkness. Or it can be a story of grace, forgiveness, and reconciliation. A story of second chances. That would be righteous in a deep, profound, and radical way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's his take on it. Okay. It's a good defense of why Punisher is a good character. Will's <laughs> not going to ever admit Hammerick <laughs> has a personality. Uh, and then one more. This is from Thomas Franzen, who's written us a few times. Right. In response to the discourse concerning Daredevil's personality, I think Matt Murdock does have a pretty clear personality, even in the Miller run. His personality is a self-centered jerk with an altruistic violent streak. In Miller's stuff, especially, Matt is straight up mean to a lot of people in his life and left lets his insane pursuit of vigilantism emotionally hurt his friends and loved ones. At one point, Matt was mean and abusive to his girlfriend, Heather Glenn, until Foggy and Black Widow broke them up for Heather's sake. Not to mention he's mean to Foggy and doesn't seem to care that his daredeviling constantly puts their joint law practice in jeopardy. All that being said, I like Matt being a jerk in the same way I like Walter White being an insane person. His insane height and jerkness is part of what makes Daredevil so entertaining to me. Keep sopping that milk. I don't know if people who like Matt Murdock would agree with the take. Yeah, he's got a personality. He's a he's like a, no. a mean vigilante. He's like an anti-hero or like a, yeah. yeah, or like maybe um, he doesn't care about his friends at all. I'm trying to think of like but, a gangster. But also, you know what? That That's not a personality. For. I mean, I know that I think I think Thomas is sort of jokingly saying some of this, but that's not a personality. Like I haven't heard any good descriptions of. Nobody can describe Matt Murdock the way you can describe Peter Parker and Tony Stark. That's that's my assertion. But I have not read a ton of Daredevil outside of the Miller stuff, i.e. the best, the universally regarded best run. I haven't. So, I mean, in the early days, Daredevil was kind of just straight up a Spider-Man personality ripoff. I'm talking yellow costume, original thing. I don't know. I haven't heard it yet, but I'm open. I'm open to being wrong, but you guys have not proved it to me yet. Will does not agree with all our listeners. That's right. Does, just, does that make you want to stop listening or does that make you want to write us more? We'll find out. So real quick, we'll just end it up. Uh, Justin Bridges emailed us. He's our, uh, basically, I'm going to say he's our honorary Marvel handbook. <laughs> okay. Emailer. He kind of, he, we ask questions and he has read all the handbooks. And so he knows the answers. Do you remember we were asked whether we wanted Wolverine's claws or Cyclops's eye beams? Yes, I do. And one of our issues was cleaning the claws. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, according to the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, they describe Wolverine's claws as (laughs) self-cleaning. 
whether that's another mechanism or an effectivist healing factor, well, it wasn't clear. So, <laughs> so they might, that might not be an issue. Okay. That's one more point towards the clause. Uh, and then one other thing, Justin emailed, I had mentioned that, uh, I didn't think the beetle, uh, had ever been in the masters of evil. And I wasn't sure about screaming Mimi or fixer. Uh, no, I think I said fixer was anyway. Uh, Apparently, they all, all of the Thunderbolts were in at least one version of the Thunderbolts. Masters of Evil. Uh, yes, the, the Masters of Evil. So yeah. they were all former Masters of Evil. Uh, I looked into it, and it's true. Yeah, Beetle was in one that, like, Baron Zemo did not run. I think it was when Egghead was running the Masters of Evil. Okay. I was wrong. Beetle was in the Masters of Evil. So good for good for old Abe Jenkins. Uh, right. Which just, uh, just reiterates my point that I still can't believe that the Sinister Six was created in Amazing Spider-Man Annual 1 and then not touched again until the 1990 like, issue. Yeah, that's crazy to me. And the Masters yeah. of Evil had like 50 different lineup changes. And the Frightful Four showed up for like 30 issues in a row of a Fantastic Four. It's just right. where the Sinister Six is like uh, like Spider-Man's team that he faces and it like wasn't a thing. Crazy to me. Crazy. It is crazy. I don't have a good, totally good answer to that, but I'm just working backwards. I'm going to say it's because the Sinister Six on their own appeared in tons of stories, like individually, whereas that might not be true for the Masters of Evil that, or the Frightful Four. That might be true. I also just sort of feel like maybe they were forgotten. I think Stan forgot about them Yeah. Uh, somehow. And then like, that seems like a Stan thing. And then mm -hmm. after not doing them for a while, it was easy to ignore them. Yeah. But yeah, you're probably right. It's because like you were, since you were doing stories with Lizard and Mysterio, I just don't think that would stop you. Why not form a different Sinister Six with a bunch of B-listers? Why not get the kangaroo? You're just like, the name uh, is so good and stuff. The Masters of Evil didn't let lineup change. Like it was, I mean, it wasn't even always Baron Zemo running. It was just a constant churn. The Frightful Four, first, its first member, Medusa, was a good guy immediately after they had to replace right. her. Right. Uh, they often were the Frightful Four with three people. They didn't let that stop them. Right. And Sandman was one of those. Yeah. It's it's crazy to me to like have a team in Marvel comics of that era where like every character's Torgo, the guy from the gangster planet shows up every now and then in Marvel comics. Right. But Sinister six was left alone. It's pretty it's nuts. Crazy. Crazy. What are we doing next week? Will? we I've, Avengers, I think we have to Avengers already. I think you're right. I think it's Avengers and then secret identity and then Astro city. Okay, so next week we're doing Avengers. We're covering, I think, issues 19 to 22, some, the Ultron storyline. I don't have the numbers in front of me. Yeah, so uh, check that out. Um, I also want to do a plug here, Kevin. I have a oh. podcast on CBB World called You Can't Handle the Sleuths. It's behind a paywall. That's why I'm plugging it. And a lot of people have come to this podcast from listening to me on Comedy Bang Bang. Thank you so much for checking this out. Um, but, you know, CBB World is kind of like, it is behind a paywall. That might not be for everybody, but the selling point is Scott lets people be kind of creative and freewheeling, and uh, it's kind of really creative and innovative and fun back there. And uh, I got to do four episodes so far called You Can't Handle the Sleuths. Much like The Incredible Hulk, I have rebooted the format almost every episode <laughs> as I try to find the perfect balance, but I think that's part of the charm. Um, but if anybody here was a fan of uh, Comedy Bang Bang in general, and certainly me on Comedy Bang Bang, uh, you'll you'll probably enjoy You Can't Handle the Sleuth. So if, you, if you're not doing CBB World, but you've thought about it, here's just another vote in that direction to check it out. And, and also, and this I got nothing, almost nothing to do with this, Ackerman's got a show called CBB FM, which is basically like a radio show as podcast episode where he gets a guest and they just play a bunch of music. Um, and it's real. I was on an ep I was on an episode of it, but I'm a fan separate from my appearance, and so I recommend that. There you go. Again, the business acumen of Will Hines waiting to the end of an hour plus episode of a podcast <laughs> to plug it after we answer mail and everyone has stopped yep. listening. Yep, guys, listen to my podcast next time. Let's do this at the top of the episode. And now buy my self help business book: How to Promote Yourself into Obscurity. <laughs> It's, I mean, it's no one's buying that book, but it, it does its job. <laughs> um, all right. And so uh, we'll see you all next episode. See you guys next week. Bye. Screw it. Screw it. We're just going to talk about comics. comics.